you should be skeptical of, of any vaccine. I think you should be skeptical of anything you put into your body. I think what you shouldn't be is cynical. Welcome to World vs. Virus, a podcast from the World Economic Forum that aims to make sense of the COVID-19 outbreak. This week, anti-vaxxers. Is public scepticism about vaccines a big enough problem to put the whole quest for a global vaccine against COVID-19 at risk? If you don't believe that the virus is what it is, you know, why would you even bother with a vaccine? The author of a new book that charts the colourful history of rumours and myths about vaccines tells us that opposition to vaccines is nothing new and goes back almost to the start of vaccinations themselves. But the power of social media and the rise of populist politics means those voices are louder today than ever before. Some of the sentiments around vaccine resistors and questioners are very much aligned with some of the issues around populism and polarization, which is anti-elite and pro-public knows best. But while hardline anti-vaxxers and conspiracy theorists might be dismissed as a lunatic fringe, anthropologist Heidi Larson says that's not the case with most people and we should take their concerns seriously. The mothers who had come to me and said, we are not flat earthers, these are not what I would call anti-vaxxers. We're parents who are genuinely concerned about our child's health, and we have some questions. I'm Robin Pomeroy, digital editor at the World Economic Forum. Subscribe to World vs. Virus on Apple, SoundCloud, Spotify, Google, or wherever you get your podcasts. And please take a moment to rate us and review us. This is World vs. Virus from the World Economic Forum. as Americans and as people who care about children and public health for those rights and for those freedoms. And thank you all for being part of this. There was a scene in August of last year outside a New York courthouse where protesters were calling for their right to be exempt from mandatory vaccinations. At the heart of the matter was measles, a disease that was officially eliminated in the United States in the year 2000. But it's making a comeback as false rumours continue to circulate that the vaccination against measles gives children autism, something that isn't true. It's based on widely discredited findings. In response to the rising number of cases of measles, New York State repealed a law that had allowed people to opt out of vaccinations on religious grounds. In the end, the court agreed with the lawmakers there should not be such an exemption. But that's just one example of many around the world, in countries rich and poor, east and west, of people rejecting the scientific evidence of the efficacy and safety of vaccines. Vaccines have saved many millions of lives. Measles, to take just one, used to kill around 2 million people, mostly young children, every year. But vaccinations have brought that down to around 140,000 a year, according to the World Health Organization. Vaccines also might be our only way out of the COVID-19 pandemic. But the rise of the anti-vax movement might put that at risk. So what is it? Who are they? Anti-vaxxers range from people who believe natural cures are better than modern science, right through to conspiracy theorists who believe 5G masks are causing the illness, or that a secret cabal is using vaccinations to control us all, perhaps even by injecting us with tracking devices. So what do people who are passionately pro-vaccines and see them as our only way out of COVID-19 think of the anti-vaxxers? We'll be hearing from anthropologist Heidi Larson shortly. First, we spoke to Paul Offit, professor of vaccinology at the Perlman School of Medicine at the University of Pennsylvania, who himself co-invented a vaccine for rotavirus, an illness that causes diarrhea in children, which can be fatal. 
Well, first of all, I think you should be skeptical of, of any vaccine. I think you should be skeptical of anything you put into your body. I think what you shouldn't be is cynical. I think that if we generate data that clearly shows that the vaccine is safe, at least in, say, tens of thousands of people, and that it's effective at, say, 70, 75 percent, knowing that 20,000 people say they're tested before approvals, knowing that the effectiveness is probably only going to be known to be effective for, say, four to six months, say, that's still a value. And, and then it's just a matter of, of managing expectations, under, making people understand what we do know and what we don't know about the vaccine. I think you should meet this with, with a degree of skepticism. I'm, I'm on the FDA's vaccine advisory committee. I can tell you that when we see data from vaccines, we're all skeptical. We want to make sure that that what we're seeing is convincing. So I think that's okay. But but crossing the line and being cynical and believing in these conspiracy theories, you know, like the virus is spread by the 5G network or Bill Gates wants to just make money off of a vaccine, those kinds of conspiracy theories, which are often embraced by the anti-vaccine activists, that's much harder to counter. People who embrace those conspiracy theories are much less likely to be compelled by reason and logic and data. I think the only way we're going to get our lives back to normal, or said another way, the only way we're going to stop transmission of this virus is with a vaccine. I mean, herd immunity or community immunity is not going to be effectively induced by natural infection. It basically never has been and it never will be. I think that only with a vaccine can we stop it. And they're always going to be at risk of spread until there's a vaccine. That was Professor Paul Offit, who was talking to my colleague Linda Lucina. Heidi Larson is a professor of anthropology and director of the Vaccine Confidence Project at the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine, an organisation that tracks rumours and misinformation about vaccines and helps counter them. Her new book, Stuck, How Vaccine Rumours Start and Why They Don't Go Away, shows us as long ago as the 1850s, when the smallpox shot was being distributed in England, there was already a movement of opposition. I asked her what term she preferred for the phenomenon of being sceptical about vaccines. In my research group, I talk about vaccine confidence and the spectrum of zero confidence to a hundred confidence. It's a more neutral terming. But I, th- I think the, the phenomena, the issue which prompted me to set up this research group and which I started to look at in the 10 years even before that, is the phenomena of growing skepticism and questioning. In your book, you take us right back to well over a century ago when vaccines were a new thing already there was a lack of trust in them. The first anti-vaccine movement, as it were, I mean, a league actually was founded in in the United Kingdom. And it was actually the anti-compulsory vaccine league. It was around the first smallpox vaccine. And the group didn't organize uh, around the vaccine itself. It organized when the government put a mandate on people having to get it. So that really fired up the sentiments, particularly of the libertarian voices to say, whoa, wait a minute, don't tell us what to do. We need to have choice. And that is one of the strongest consistent sentiments in the questioning and resistance around vaccine is this issue of personal choice. The point everyone in favour of vaccines makes is that it's not just a question of protecting the individual, it's a question of protecting the wider society. Human rights in general have a whole range of, of rights. And in the case of vaccines, the people resisting the mandates are saying, I want freedom of choice, freedom of voice, freedom of expression. But the other case is the public right to health. And that's where the scientific and medical community are at odds sometimes 
with immunization programs because um, a mother is thinking about her child. And when you give her a lot of data about the um, bigger picture, that's less compelling when she's very worried about her child as an individual. What is different today from 100 years ago or even 20 years ago? The two biggest changes in the landscape are that we have a lot more vaccines. I mean, when the smallpox anti-compulsory vaccine league started, smallpox was the first kid on the block, really. I mean, there was another vaccine that uh, was being developed, but really from a public perspective, it was really the vaccine that the focus was on. Now we have so many different vaccines, combinations of vaccines. So the public has a lot more to be questioning and concerned about. One of the big concerns of mothers is, whoa, that's too many for my healthy baby. They can't take it. Their immune system is being overloaded. From a scientific point of view, there it's no evidence that there's a problem with the number that they're getting, but from a mother's perspective and and from some individuals in general. So one of the big changes in the landscape is how many vaccines and combinations of vaccines. But as you point out, and is is definitely a, a thread in my book, the communications landscape, the connectivity, the glo- the globalization of of risk, as I call it, and sentiment is another phenomena that the two of those issues converging, along with a highly polarized world we live in right now, is adding another dimension to these debates. You link the idea of doubts or lack of confidence in viruses and lack of confidence in the science behind them to the kind of wave of populism that we're seeing in countries for example, anti-vaxxers in the US believe, whether this is right or not, they have the support of Donald Trump. You you document this quite clearly in your book, but also you give examples of Spain, Italy, we could also imagine Brazil, parts of Asia. Why is it such an appealing message that populist politicians can latch on to these fears and these doubts about vaccines, do you think? A lot of the questioning around vaccines does reflect a kind of anti-establishment, anti-elite. And some of the some of the narratives, some of the sentiments around vaccine resistors and questioners are very much aligned with some of the issues around around populism and polarization, which is anti-elite and pro-public and pro-public knows best and we're with you. Whereas the science behind vaccines as well as the the regulations and the recommendations are at many levels very top down and also seem farther and farther away from the individual in our society today where we don't have the kind of country doctor where you develop a longer term relationship with and is a more trusted figure than than these days when you only get a few minutes sometimes with with a GP or a pediatrician, depending on the line out the door. This is the global elite in many cases handing down these mandates to the normal people to, to vaccinate themselves or their children. And that's not a message that goes down well with a lot of people who feel very disconnected from what they see as a global elite. Absolutely. The other element in there is the mandate 
part. Certainly in Italy, that was what the populist party leached onto in a, in a sense, because the previous government had introduced a mandate in the face of a very bad measles epidemic, added required measles vaccination to school attendance. And so the populist party you know, aligned with those who were against this mandate and said, we want to give you choice, we want to give you freedom of voice, and, and your decisions are yours. So it's those kind of dynamics. You're listening to World Versus Virus with me, Robin Pomeroy. If you're enjoying this podcast, please rate it and leave us a review. And also, check out our sister podcast, The Great Reset, which looks at how we can build a cleaner, fairer, smarter world after COVID-19. The most recent episode, Financing a Sustainable Recovery, features the head of the International Monetary Fund, who urges governments to use the vast sums of money they're pumping into stimulus programs to support greener and smarter parts of the economy. We put the floor under the world economy. Do not withdraw support prematurely, but this support has to be more more differentiated in terms of what is the economy of the future. And coming soon on The Great Reset, we'll hear about global efforts to keep children in education and we learn how the Muppets can help save their lives. When you see Elmo going to the doctor to get a shot, that helps a parent reassure a child why this is so important and why this is okay. Subscribe to The Great Reset on Apple, SoundCloud, Spotify, Google or wherever you get your podcasts and please take a moment to rate it and review it. Now back to World vs. Virus, where I'm talking to anthropologist Heidi Larson about the threat posed by anti-vaxxers. So let's look at the public attitude in some cases to science. You link this in some ways to wider anti-science views, such as on climate change. People who are saying climate science, again, is defined by experts in their ivory towers, and it doesn't in many ways relate to my everyday life. But on the other hand... There's also a link with environmentalism. So it's kind of at the other end of the spectrum. People who are probably very concerned about climate change, probably very concerned about pollution, what's in, what's in the air they breathe and the food they eat. And you've got someone like Robert Kennedy Jr., who for years was an advocate, literally a, a lawyer for environmental causes in the US. But now he's one of the leading anti-vax voices. You also use this word granolification and talk about the goop effect and this idea of mother nature will, will nurture us and we don't need these interventions from, from science. So there's a kind of contradiction here. You've got anti-science people against vaccines and you've got anti-environmentalists against vaccines and pro-environmentalists but pro-nature people against vaccines. Isn't this a bit of an odd coalition? There is, frankly, a much broader and diverse coalition of actors that are questioning than are the ones who are accepting vaccines. Frankly, that's a much more, from a values perspective, from a, a lifestyle perspective, you tend to get a much more homogenous, not to say it's fully homogenous, but there is quite a diversity of of actors in the questioning group. And what's interesting with, with Robert Kennedy is, and I really got to know his points of view much more around the the global compact uh, that was banning mercury. And that, you know, you would have seen that as a pro-environment uh, movement, which it was. And really the mercury they were most concerned about was the kind of mercury that's in mining that gets generated and it's, and it's quite serious pollutant. 
the anti-thimerosal parent groups and, and activists he aligned with in trying to get thimerosal, which is a preservative in vaccines, but of such a minute amount and of a very different kind of mercury than is the particularly dangerous kind, lobbying regional environmental groups around the world to add thimerosal to the list of banned compounds. Now, that would have had a huge impact on the lives of children in the poorer parts of the world. And I was writing quite a bit quite a few commentaries on this at the time. And I saw this, his jumping, what seemed to be jumping across platforms. But it's around the ingredients where the environmental and also the anti-GMO, there's a bit of, wait a minute, this is this is against nature, which interestingly was one of the other threads of the 1800s vaccine skeptics was this the nature of inoculation was against God's plan. The tenor of the debate online is always so vicious. And people write things and people say things online that they probably wouldn't say to the face of somebody like you. You're very calm and measured. And some of the accusations that come out are so full of anger. But also the same thing might be said about people on the other side, people who are anti-anti-vaxxers. It makes a lot of people very angry when people are ignoring science, when people are part of a movement that causes an epidemic to re-emerge of diseases that we thought we had under control, for example, measles. You take a very different approach. You're not angry, it would seem to me, with these people. You are arguing strongly that we don't dismiss anti-vaxxers as flat earthers, that actually we listen to what they're saying. The mothers who had come to me and, and said, we are not flat earthers, these are not what I would call anti-vaxxers, which is a very strong and outspoken, smaller group, but with huge impact. But there is a very large group of people, I would say in the middle between the two ends of very pro and very anti, who have some genuine questions and concerns and choices they've made in terms of their lifestyle. And they're the ones who feel like they're, as I've been told, demonized for even asking questions. And they've said, you know, we're not flat earthers. We're not in this extreme group. We're parents who are genuinely concerned about our child's health. And we have some questions. It's difficult. I, Although I have not been in the same room with Robert Kennedy or Andrew Wakefield, I have been confronted with and questioned by some very strong uh, opinions that I don't necessarily agree with or don't agree with at all. But one of the things I've learned is throwing anger at anger just ends up going nowhere. In fact, it just fuels both sides. And I think it's important in the way that I've tried in these confrontations to defuse that kind of thing is, is to listen. And I think we've lost the art of listening <laughs> in these debates. Listening doesn't mean you have to agree with the other side, but just the sheer act of listening. I think part of the reason that these voices have gotten louder and louder and louder is be we've squeezed the listening out of our dialogue on this issue. 
And, you know, it's, look at some of the other social protests going on. That's coming from a deep-seated place saying, we did try to have a conversation. You haven't listened to us for years. The only thing we have left is to turn up the volume, is to make noise. Maybe you'll listen to us now. So, you know, I, I try to listen to some of their angles. And frankly, you know, they've become extremely sophisticated. And sometimes there's an element of a point there and reasoning that gets amplified with all kinds of other things. But there's something to listening that has its value and I think can diffuse some of these tensions, but not always. There are sometimes you just can't change the other view. The World Economic Forum commissioned Ipsos to uh, question people about whether or not they would take a vaccine against COVID-19. Now, you can find this, our listeners can find this online at weforum.org. The, the headline we chose to run with was th- the good news that three in four adults around the world say they would get a COVID-19 vaccine. Of course, that means one out of four say they wouldn't. Actually, 27% say they either totally disagree or somewhat disagree with the idea of they have any interest in getting a COVID-19 vaccine. Is that a number that surprises you and or concerns you? One of the challenges with some of these numbers is that they bundle the somewhat disagree with strongly disagree And I think in the context of a COVID vaccine right now, it's not unreasonable for people to hesitate. I mean, we have no, I mean, I would want to wait uh, to make a decision until I know the safety profile and the efficacy. I mean, presumably, and I trust enough that vaccines wouldn't get out the door to the public without uh, enough safety rigor, but efficacy is another thing. That's something that is decided, you know, is it effective enough? It's not, is it 100% effective? Is it effective enough in the context of the disease risk that we have? But as an individual, you may have a different sense. So I don't think it's unreasonable for some people to be hesitating around a vaccine they haven't even, you know, don't have the information on yet. But I do see the concerning bit are the people who just say, I'm not going there. You know, it's just not something I want. And for some of those reasons are um, because they don't even believe that this is really a a problem. You know, there are COVID deniers. People think there are other causes. If you don't believe that the virus is what it is, you know, why would you even bother with a vaccine? So... It's quite a spectrum. <laughs> so what can you do uh, as a person, as an organization to, to counter any of those things? What we do is we work collaboratively with ministries, with on the ground organizations to help them come up with ways to to get a read from the community. We worked a lot with Ebola trials on rumor management, on community engagement. In the beginning, particularly in the West Africa Ebola outbreak, there was a lot of denialism that it was really Ebola. They thought that was much more something in DR Congo. The West is making it up, the developed world to sell more drugs and vaccines. But 
in the time when the vaccines were getting their approval, even for trials, we were out there working with communities, identifying community listening groups, and we created a rapid feedback from the community to the clinicians and the trial group. So if we started to hear a rumor, for instance, one rumor was that the blood was being sold and they thought, well, they're taking lots of blood, they're gonna sell it somewhere. And so we turned this to the trial managers and what they did then at the beginning, they would show them the amount of blood they actually took, which was this like a big, a big pen. And then the question was, well, why are you only taking that much? <laughs> In the dialogue, the when they enrolled the participants, they would then add, after we got this rumor back to them, they said, we do not expect any issues with the vaccine itself. This is for your broader family health. And so it, it, it calmed uh, down because they felt like someone was hearing their concern and it was somehow being addressed. Part of the success of that sounds to me it was this face-to-face. -face. The face-to-face -face is really, really important. I mean, I even was sitting at a lunch last month and there was one woman at the table who was not pro-vaccine, but she was talking to me about her reasons. And at the end of the lunch, she said, you know, I'm going to give it a try now because you've really helped me understand a couple of things. But it's really because I had someone to talk to. It didn't feel so anonymous. And this term that she picked, the anonymity of it all, we have to try to get around that. Are you optimistic that there'll be enough confidence in vaccines that when there is a vaccine or vaccines against COVID-19, enough people around the world will be willing to take it? to achieve that herd immunity that we all want to achieve? Or is there a real risk that we won't be able to do that? I think there's a real risk if we wait until we have one. Because one, I don't think there's going to be enough for the, the broader population until the spring. There will, we'll see where we are with the epidemic, pandemic. But if we don't start now, every day we lose in terms of the time to prepare the public to involve them with the, you know to be transparent about how people how governments are deciding who gets it first but also i think we have a lot of work to do in engaging and dialogue with the public and and getting out there much more about what is covid this is way not the flu this is a much more serious complex, and we don't know how long these symptoms last. We are seeing more and more cases where there's very long tail of symptoms and symptoms recurring. And this is the characteristics of this virus are extremely serious. And I think we're not capturing that well enough for people to realize this is not a, if you don't get it this season, you're, you're home free. And the other thing is we haven't done a great job in talking to people about and, and engaging about why some of these vaccines are being developed faster. It's not because we're shortcutting old processes. These are brand new technologies, new opportunities. We characterize the virus much quicker than before. We had a financing mechanism launched at the World Economic Forum that 
made it possible to have funding available much quicker than usual for first vaccines. And that was thanks to Ebola. So we haven't, we've talked about speed, 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 but as far as the public knows, they're just speeding up an old process. And any of these explanations, any of these dialogues we can have can help prepare people to understand why and how they a vaccine is important, but also they can have time to ask questions about it. You characterize yourself as an optimist. I can't remember the phrase you used. I'm a patient optimist. Exactly. You're a patient optimist. Try and persuade me and anyone listening to this why they should also be optimists, that we're going to be able to overcome the lack of trust in vaccines and get people, once we've got that vaccine that works, to actually take the vaccine. Why should I be optimistic? Well, I'm optimistic because of a generation of younger, well, I have a lot of students, but also children of parents who have refused vaccination, who interestingly are starting to stand up and say, wait a minute, I go to school, I've read about vaccines, I know the science, I want my vaccine. I'm not going to make that mistake for my children. So we have and in a group of, with their own emotions, their own values coming up. I think also one of the drivers of the issues now is because there's a lot of hesitation in among public health authorities to go into the social media space. They'll do SMS text appointment reminders, but not engage online. And that's where all the emotion is. That's where all the questions are. That's where all the concerns are. And I think this same younger cohort, the next cohort of junior doctors and pediatricians and health authorities will have grown up with social media. And I think that the current disconnect and the discomfort and the uncomfortableness of this digital divide, as it were, that's more of a generational than a rich and poor country thing, will will come around and there'll be a, a different kind of ease around it. I'm not saying the sentiments that drive some of these will go away. They haven't gone away since the 1800s. But the nature and the amplification and the polarization of these sentiments can be mitigated. That was Professor Heidi Larson of the Vaccine Confidence Project. Her book, Stuck, How Vaccine Rumours Start and Why They Don't Go Away, is out now and I highly recommend it. You can find all our coverage of COVID-19, including that Ipsos poll, at weforum.org and follow us on Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, TikTok, YouTube and on Twitter using the handle at WF. Thanks to Linda Lucina and to Gareth Nolan for help producing the podcast. Please subscribe to receive it every week. Just search World vs. Virus on Apple, Google, SoundCloud, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. And also check out our sister podcast, The Great Reset. We'll be back soon. For now, from me, Robin Pomeroy at the World Economic Forum, thanks for listening and goodbye.